That may be a first. I'm not sure that we've ever shown a clip from a musical. I could be wrong. I, I don't remember that. Um, and I, I know it's a, a little odd to uh, start off the morning with Wolverine and Maximus singing to one another. Um, so that, that takes a, a few minutes to wrap your head around. But this was, of course, a clip from Les Miserables. If you're not familiar with the book or the, the many kind of iterations of the book put to film and Broadway, it's about Jean Valjean, uh, a man who has experienced deep forgiveness such that it's changed his life. And along the way, and I won't give away too much, but as you watch the film, as you read the book, you see the way that that forgiveness, that experience, transformed him into a different kind of person. Now, his foil is Javert, who has, his life mission is wrapped up in making sure the law is kept, the legal code is met. And he's out to ensure that Jean Valjean, who has broken parole years ago, is brought to justice. And in the process, makes his life literally a living hell. But here you see the scene where Valjean has the opportunity to end it all, to just be done with it. But instead, he releases Javert. He gives him freedom. He treats him with kindness and mercy. And it's rooted in both his experience of forgiveness and also his understanding that he's just a man like any other man. And out of that understanding, out of that knowledge, out of that experience, he offers freedom, new life to Javert. He does not take revenge. Well, we're continuing a series that we've been in for a couple of weeks that we're calling Sovereign. And in this series, we're looking at two specific characters, and that is King Saul and David. From the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, these two giants of the, the Hebrew faith, the first kings of the new nation. And we kind of watch Saul's rise and fall, the identification of him as the obvious first choice for a king, but then we watch his his inability to kind of stand up for what he knows he ought to do, his insecurities, his fear, just come oozing out and ultimately lead to his being kind of pushed to the side for the sake of a new king, David. And then we begin to watch David's ascent. And, and last week, we saw David take down Goliath, right? The, the kind of story that many of us are familiar with, the young shepherd boy coming up against the giant with his sling, taking this giant down. And we talked a lot about how the challenges that David faced early on, because he allowed God to shape him through those challenges, enabled him to do what he needed to do in this moment against this giant. Well, not surprisingly, immediately after this, we kind of see David kind of vault to, to prominence in Israel. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he defeats this giant in full view of the armies of Israel, and Saul immediately kind of makes David one of the commanders of his armies. 
And we read in the next, very next chapter in 1 Samuel, this is all coming from uh, the first book of Samuel. There's two books, 1 and 2 Samuel. And I encourage you as we're going through the series to read along. Someone uh, said to me last week, they're like, yeah, in that David and Goliath story, you missed a lot. I was like, well, yes, that's true. This is quite a lengthy narrative. I'm going to miss a lot. There's just way more than we can tackle here. And so please be reading. I really encourage you to be reading along. There's lots of really cool stuff that we won't be talking about just for the sake of time. Um, so I encourage you to be reading along. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we have Bibles sitting on the tables back there. Please take one for free. Take it home. Use it. It's our gift to you. Um, but there will be some things we will miss. Um, but what we read immediately after David kind of defeats Goliath and gets put as commander in, in the army of Saul, we read this in, in chapter 18, that whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. So, so he puts him in this role, he starts going on missions, and everything he does, he succeeds, which is actually really good for Saul, right? It, it fortifies Saul's kingdom and his position. However, we read not too many verses later in verse 15, that when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. And this is the downfall of Saul. That Saul, despite all of his exterior, like, you know, his good looks, his height. We read earlier, if, if you've been with us, he's like a head taller than everyone else. Tall, good-looking, muscular guy, looks like a king. Despite all of that, despite the fact that he's handpicked as the first ruler ever, he is full of insecurity. He needs the approval of others. He needs people to acknowledge him. And when he starts seeing David succeeding, he doesn't look around and go, oh, that's great for me. The army's doing well. Like, we, we're, you know, we're secure. This is great. He, he doesn't see any of that. He sees a threat. And he becomes afraid and resentful and jealous. And so he actually becomes an enemy to David. Samuel tells us that he becomes the enemy for the rest of his days against this person who, from everything we can tell, is doing everything he can to support Saul. As you read along, we, we, we find out that Saul is actually tormented by uh, what Samuel calls an evil spirit. Many people have kind of wondered if, if Saul wasn't struggling with a mental illness at some level. I mean, he's just, there are times when this thing just feels so overwhelming to him that he can't, he, he's just, he's, he's down and, and depressed and can't kind of move forward. He just feels frozen. And so they bring David in to play his harp and it lifts his spirits. But despite that, there are moments where as he's playing, as he's doing this to kind of care for Saul, Saul like, tries to spear him against the wall. He attempts to kill David. There are other stories where, where Saul takes different measures. He tries to be a little bit more subtle. Uh, one of my favorite ones, but also one that kind of proves that you, you, you kind of need to read ahead. If, you're, if you have kids and you're reading the Bible with your kids, that's a great thing. You really should do that. If you're going to read the Old Testament with them, you probably want to read ahead just to kind of know what's coming. So there's a great story in this where, where um, Saul is really trying to trick David into getting killed. And so what he does is he says, hey, David, if you would like to marry my daughter, Michael, you don't have to pay me any money. All I want is for you to go and get me. Now remember, we talked about the Philistines in the battle with Goliath. 
So they're the arch enemies of Israel at this time. He says, all I want is a hundred Philistine foreskins. That's it. Think about that. That's kind of weird. Um, so he sends David and a few others on this mission, thinking surely this will be the end of them. David takes this on as like a completely appropriate way to win the hand of his new wife. He's like, yeah, that's great. Let's go. Strap on a sword and let's get to it. And what does he do? He does better than that. He gets 200. Now, try not to think too much about how the counting method worked, how transportation happened. I spent some time thinking about this, and I was like, you know what? We just don't need to go there. All we know is that it happened, right? So, so he got, in order to, he, he kind of thwarts Saul's plan to, to send him on this suicide mission and returns with 200 foreskins to get the hand of Saul's uh, daughter, Michael. Saul will go to any length possible to destroy David. Eventually, what, this, what happens is David takes 600 men with him and escapes for his life. Uh, he, he goes out into the wilderness to get away from Saul, and Saul pursues him relentlessly, gets distracted from the business of running the kingdom so he can pursue David. His hatred for his enemy is so intense, it drives him. Now, my guess is, most of us don't know exactly what this is like. I hope. I hope you have not experienced someone physically trying to kill you. But we all know what it's like to have enemies. We know what it's like to have people in our lives who we think should be out for our good, should care about us, but it often doesn't feel that way. It, it might be a boss who just for some reason never seemed to like you, and you couldn't figure out why. And, and we don't know, may, maybe she felt threatened, maybe it was something you said at some point, but you could just never, no matter what you did, no matter how well you think you did your job, she always made it difficult. Every performance review Every time, that, every time you had to have a conversation about a project you were on, you always felt like you were butting heads, you were against one another, that you were on different teams, and you just couldn't figure it out. It seemed like she was out to get you. Or maybe you've even experienced this in your family, with a sibling or even a spouse, who, even though you feel like you ought to be working together, sometimes you, seem, you feel like you're on different teams, that you're butting heads, that rather than being kind of a close friend or a confidant, you're not even sure if you can trust them. Are they out for your good? Are their intentions good for you? Or maybe it's someone, a neighbor, a friend, someone who's been gossiping about you. And, you know, face-to-face, they're, they're friendly, they're nice, but you know, because you have mutual friends, that when you're not around, when your back is turned, they're in people's ear about you. They're talking about all the things about you they don't like at the water cooler at work, next door when they're hanging out with the other neighbors. They're talking about you. They're, they're tearing you down. They're sullying your reputation. And while it's not the same thing as Saul trying to kill David, 
this can feel really difficult. To have an enemy, to have someone who you feel like is working against you, it can feel hard to not want to simply take matters into your own hands and work for justice for yourself. So what do we do? How do we deal with that? Well, we're going to look at how David deals with this in uh, chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. There's a lot of different, again, we're skipping ahead here to chapter 24, right? We just hopped over a bunch of chapters. uh, And there's a couple of different times where we see David deal with this. We're going to look at one particular time, probably because I think it's just kind of a fun passage, and you'll understand why in a minute, and you'll probably think less of me after that. But um, uh, you'll see. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning at verse 2. So remember, David has kind of headed out with 600 men with him, and they're kind of hiding in the wilderness. Saul hears that they're in this place called En Gedi, which kind of sounds like a place in the Star Wars universe, but it's actually this this kind of remote place with lots of caves. And we start in verse 2. Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now think about that. He takes 3,000 able young men to search after these people. He really wants David dead. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, you heard that right. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. So it's... It's just a great story in my mind as you're reading this, right? Like, so Saul is leading his 3,000 men to attack David and his 600 men. They're hiding in the cave. Saul has to go. He's in the wilderness. I guess kind of the thing you do is you look for a cave. And so he finds a cave, unwittingly chooses the one cave that David and his 600 men are hiding in, way far in the back. And he goes to do his business. While he's doing that, David's men look at him. They're like, this is perfect. Clearly, God wants you to kill him. 
I mean, you could not ask for a better opportunity. Like, there he is. He's completely not paying attention. Just go up and kill him. There it is. God's delivered him to you. And this makes all the sense in the world to me as I read this. Obviously, here is his chance. This is his Jean Valjean and Javert moment. Saul is unjustly pursuing him, making his life difficult. David has already been anointed king. Just take care of it already. Be done with this. The country will be better off. David, you'll be better off. Just do it. But he doesn't. He chooses instead to offer mercy, kindness, even forgiveness. And I think for many of us, this just doesn't register. Like, this isn't really how real life works. But for David, he seemed to have this really clear sense that it wasn't that justice didn't matter. It wasn't that getting it right didn't matter. But it was, at the end of the day, not his job to make sure that happened. Again, he says, May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. David realized that revenge was not his responsibility. It was not his job to take revenge. And I think part of why he understood that is because he saw what what hatred, which is what fuels revenge, did to Saul. How it wasn't simply just, these weren't just actions that Saul was taking, but it was a force that was shaping who Saul was on the inside. Martin Luther King Jr. was someone who had a lot of enemies. Um, He was, uh, his house was firebombed. He was personally threatened many, 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 many times. His family was threatened. Uh, He was imprisoned. He was beaten. Lots of enemies. And if anybody had reason to talk about the value of using force as a way to make, to bring justice to get revenge, it it should have been Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, he got a lot of criticism from people who thought he was being way too soft, that his nonviolent tactics were idealistic, unrealistic, that he needed to grow up and realize there's a real world out there with real people, and sometimes you have to take violent action. But King chose a different path, informed largely by his faith in Christ, Because he believed that it wasn't just, these weren't just kind of isolated actions. These were soul-shaping activities. He said this about what hate, what revenge does to the human condition, the human soul. He says, hate scars the soul and distorts the personality. Mindful that hate is an evil and dangerous force, we too often think of what it does to the person hated. But there is another side which we must never overlook. Hate is just as injurious to the person who hates. Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away its vital unity. Hate destroys a man's sense of values and his objectivity. It causes him to describe the beautiful as ugly and the ugly as beautiful. 
and to confuse the true with the false and the false with the true. King believed that the reason we have to choose a different path than hate is not simply because hate doesn't work, but because hate will ultimately destroy us. We were not created to be people who live with hate for very long. It's a destructive force in our lives. That's why I think David used that proverb, from evildoers come evil deeds. It wasn't simply that he didn't want to do an evil deed and be labeled an evildoer. It's that he knew that they weren't separate things. To do an evil deed started you down the road of becoming a particular kind of person, of becoming an evil person. To choose revenge, to choose hate, had a shaping action in someone's life. King knew that. David knew that. And I think one of the early Christian leaders, Paul, knew that. When he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, a church that was not well-liked by the people around them, he said this in Romans chapter 12, 17 to 19. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Again, it's the same theme that vengeance, getting revenge, setting things right with another person who is taking advantage of you, who is your enemy, that that is ultimately not your job. In fact, you were not even created to carry that weight. If you try, you will, as Jesus says, even if you win, even if you do, even if you get revenge on the person and you win, ultimately, as Jesus says, you will gain the whole world and forfeit your very self. Revenge, hatred, they will destroy us. We were not made to carry them. So what does that mean about God? Does that mean that God is simply... going to be out kind of carrying out vengeful acts and so we can sit back and wait for him to smite the people who are our enemies? Uh, Not really, actually. As people who are dependent on God to show mercy and grace on a daily basis, we believe that's not just for us, it's also for our enemies. So we don't believe that God is out there simply wielding a sword and going Liam Neeson on people that we don't like. But we do trust that in the end, God will do what is right and good. And so the only thing we can do is live in that trust. Hope is what will help us move forward. So what is our role? What, what can we do? If it's not get revenge, if it's not make it right, so what, what can we do? Well, Jesus speaks clearly on this subject, I think. In the first biography of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, we read this from Jesus' teachings. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Now, that's probably not new news for most of us, even if you're kind of new to this whole church thing. You've probably heard that phrase before. 
And it sounds, again, a little idealistic, right? Love your enemies. What does that mean? Well, one thing I think I can say for sure it does not mean is it doesn't mean like your enemies. It doesn't mean you need to feel some kind of warmth or affection towards someone who is out to harm you. Not at all. The word love here is the Greek word agape. And there are a number of different words that the Greeks used for love. This particular word had to do with more of a general sense of wanting the good of all people. Wanting everyone to flourish and become who they were created to be. Even our enemies. Because we know that them being our enemies is not ultimately in line with who they were made to be. And so part of wanting the best for them, part of loving them, is wanting to see that relationship change and grow and develop. Our role in this, in dealing with our enemies, is learning what it means to love them, to be out for their good. So probably at this point, there are two questions that you are asking. Number one, why? Like, why should we do this? Um, Other than, you know, if we're just going to take the tactic of, we're like, Jesus said we ought to, so I guess we should. Um, what's the reasoning behind that? And, and if we're convinced that we want to, how? So let's talk about why first, real quickly. First of all, the why that Jesus gives us is that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Who we believe Jesus shows God to be, and who the New Testament kind of tells us God is, is that At its very core, God is love. And not the feeling, emotional love that we often think about, but that God is the love that is out to see all of us transformed, to become the kind of people that we were created to be, to flourish, to find life. That agape love. And just as revenge and hatred has a a shaping, a transformative factor in our lives, when we choose to carry this kind of love, because that is what God is, that is who God is, when we choose to live in that, even when it's hard, what we're doing is we're allowing God, who is love, to work in us and shape us, to change us, to make us people who reflect God's image, children of God. That's the end goal, that you and I would become the kind of people in whom love finds a home, in whom love is very comfortable residing because we live in love. And as we do that, we reflect the very nature of God, who God is, what God is about, people who are living in love. So that's the first one, that we would be children of our Father in heaven. The second one is that the only way that you can get rid of an enemy, really destroy an enemy, is to make them your friend. I know, that sounds... Weird and probably not even that attractive. I'm guessing the first thing you think of when you think of an enemy is not, gee, I wish we could get to a point where we could just have coffee together. Like, that would be awesome. Um, but you can't, I mean, you can't destroy an enemy. If you try, typically what you do is you just multiply enemies. Unless they become friend. Again, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about this. He says, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. 
By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. There's, a, I think, a great example of this in one of the most unlikely places in recent years. There's a man named Shane Winmeyer who is the uh, founder of Campus Pride, which is the largest uh, collegiate group in the, the country that works for um, LGBTQ rights on college campuses, raising awareness, helping students have safe spaces, um, feel like they're connected to others, and, and, and fight for their rights, and, and helping people just kind of be aware of what's going on in the LGBTQ community. He's a champion of that. He himself is a, a gay man. In two, th- 2012, um, there was uh, a situation with Chick-fil-A, a very popular restaurant that many of you are familiar with, that has very strong, um, the, the founders have very strong kind of ties to their Christian faith. And from their particular perspective, they are opposed to uh, same-sex marriage. And they've been very public about that. And around 2012, Dan Cathy, um, so you see Shane and Dan here in the picture, uh, Dan Cathy very publicly made some statements about what he thought would be the result of the fact that there was a growing support for marriage equality in the United States. <clears throat> Kathy made some statements about God's judgment, divine wrath, and how that might uh, kind of be ushered into the country. Understandably, uh, Shane and his people at, um, at uh, Campus Pride were very, uh, very concerned about this, and they began organizing protests against Chick-fil-A. There was a lot of national news that happened around these protests and about uh, Kathy's kind of public statements that he would not recant his statement uh, about his views on marriage. And then Winmeyer and Campus Pride and others who were kind of protesting and, and all that was happening around this. A lot of public news play that happened. What didn't get a whole lot of news was what began happening behind the scenes. At one point during all of this, during this boycott, Winmeyer got a phone call from Dan Cathy. And he admits in an article he wrote later for the Huffington Post, he was fairly nervous about answering this call. He's like, I don't know how this is going to go. Is this guy just going to, like, scream at me on the phone? Is he going to threaten legal act? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. But he took the call. And it was the exact opposite of what he thought would happen. Cathy wanted to get to know Winmeyer. He asked questions about ways that the things that he said, the positions that he took, how that had impacted people in the LGBTQ community. He asked for Shane to share stories. And, and Winmeyer would say over the course of the next weeks and months, they exchanged phone call after phone call, text message after text message, and eventually began meeting face to face. You can see them here um, at the uh, Chick-fil-A Bowl where he came as Dan Cathy's guest. And he wrote an article in the Huffington Post entitled, uh, Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy. And what was remarkable in this was that neither of them changed their views. Neither of them really budged in terms of what they thought about the issue. But in the midst of it, they stopped being enemies And they developed a friendship, not based on agreement, but based on understanding and getting to know one another, personal connection. 
It was remarkable. Winmeyer in the article says this. Through all of this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and, and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. He and I were committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground, if possible, and to build respect no matter what. We learned about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. This is such a rare picture, particularly in our culture, where we are so polarized, and we're convinced if someone disagrees with us, they have to be our enemy. It's a beautiful picture of what I think Jesus is talking about here when he says in Matthew chapter 5, right after he talks about loving your enemy, he says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Loving your enemies is the best way to destroy them because it's the only way that you can possibly make them friends. Now, it doesn't always work, of course. Um, the end result is not always that the person who you're at odds with becomes your friend. But it is the only chance that that can happen. It's the only chance that you can destroy an enemy by choosing to love. So if that's the why, how? How do we begin to do this? There's probably more that can be said, but I think there are three things that are critical for us if we're going to begin to live this kind of life of love where we're, we're not simply fighting against our enemies, we're not avoiding our enemies, but we're actively looking to love them in the way of Jesus. Number one is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not optional if we're going to love our enemies. It's essential. We need to become people who live by forgiveness. And for those of us who are looking to walk in the way of Jesus, there are a few things as central as this theme. Where on the cross, we hear Jesus, even as he's being murdered, cry out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even in that moment where he is being most hated, he's able to offer forgiveness. But even beyond that, in the cross, we see the ultimate picture of God's forgiveness offered to us. That in Jesus' death, we can find new life and forgiveness. And because of that, because we have been forgiven, like Jean Valjean, because he had received forgiveness, he was also able to offer it. Or again, as Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Our ability to forgive, to live lives marked by forgiveness, is rooted in our understanding that we are forgiven. It's got to start there. You can't, if you don't have a clear sense that you have been forgiven, there's no reason why you should be offering forgiveness. But for those of us who believe that in the cross God offers us forgiveness, then we have no reason not to. We have no reason to withhold it from others. So that's number one, forgive. Number two, we need to reflect. And what I mean by that is, I think far too often 
we, char- we characterize our enemies as something quite different than us, as something other than human, as people who don't have the same complex inner dynamics that we do. They're monolithic creatures who just have one kind of goal in life, and that's our destruction, which is really not true. If we reflect on ourselves, we know that sometimes we say things that are deeply hurtful to others. That sometimes, as much as we might want to be on somebody's side, we make choices that cause friction, that cause pain. That sometimes we do the wrong thing because we just don't see the full picture and we make mistakes. We understand that we are human and flawed and capable of making grievous errors that can hurt people deeply. And if we understand that, then we can be quicker to offer grace and forgiveness to others when they aren't who we think they ought to be as well, even when they're our enemy. So we need to forgive, we need to reflect, and finally, we need to exercise wisdom. Look, in some situations... It is clear that loving your enemy does not mean staying in the situation. Where an enemy may actually be trying to cause physical harm, in some ways acting abusive towards you, where the most loving thing you can do, if if what love is, is helping people become their fullest selves, their most complete selves in life with God and others, then the most loving thing you can do is actually to create space, to get away. There are times when that is true. And I don't in any way want to, uh, to say that you just need to be a punching bag. You need to kind of throw yourself out there. We can see all through Scripture, even Jesus, right? There were different times in his life because his death was a very specific part of what he was doing. There were times people wanted to kill him that he was like, not now, I'm getting out of here, right? Like he, it wasn't just like, oh, anytime anybody wants to take a swing, go for it. We see that all through these biblical characters. Again, David leaves and takes 600 men with him. This isn't just be a punching bag. Like the, you, need to, you need to exercise wisdom. Loving our enemy doesn't always mean just laying down. In fact, it rarely means just laying down. But it does mean that we can't simply cast them in a completely um, monolithic, one-size-fits-all caricature of who they are. We need to be people who learn to love to be about the good of others, even those who would be our enemy. And if we do that, then we allow the God who is love to live in us, to work through us, to shape us into the kind of people who can experience life as we were created for. That's how we find life. It's not always easy. In fact, it's often very difficult. Loving your enemy is really hard. But it is good way better than the alternative. The alternative is self-destruction and eventually death, if not physically, spiritually. Life is found as we choose to do the hard work of loving our enemies. Father, this is this, this way of Jesus of kind of learning to Love our enemies is really counterintuitive and it's really difficult. 
we need help. So would you help me? Would you help my friends? For those of us who want to do this, who even if we're, we're not even quite sure what we think about faith or, or what we think about you, um, but maybe some people here have tasted the bitterness of seeking revenge. And they know where that leads. They know the, the hollowness, the emptiness, the, what happens when your life becomes about getting even. They understand. For them and for all of us, as we look to kind of learn to love our enemies, would you meet us and give us strength? Strength to choose into the hard work of love. And as we do, God of love, would you be at work in us, shaping us into people who are the children of God, who reflect the image of God in the way in which we love. And we ask this in Jesus' name.